This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Margaret Chowning. I'm a historian, and I'm also the chair of the Moses Lectureship Committee. In 1937, University of California President Robert Gordon Sproul and the UC Board of Regents established the Bernard Moses Memorial Lectureship in the Social Sciences. The lectureship honors the memory of the late Bernard Moses, a professor of history and political science at the University of California from 1875 to 1911, and an emeritus professor from 1911 until his death in 1930. Professor Moses earned a worldwide reputation for his contributions to understanding the problems of the Latin American republics and as a pioneer scholar. Professor Moses served as a member of the United States Philippine Commission from 1900 to 1904. Past lecturers have included Herma Hill Kay, Nicholas Riosanovsky, George Lakoff, Kenneth Stamp, Carolyn Merchant, Jean Lave, Emmanuel Size. Yuri Sleskin, Iwa Ong, and Marianne Mason. And now I'd like to say a few words about our speaker today, Anne Swidler. Professor Swidler is a distinguished sociologist whose work is highly influential in how scholars think about culture, religion, and social institutions. She's often cited for her now classic article, Culture in Action, published in 1986, in which she presents the idea that culture shapes a toolkit of styles, skills, and habits, which in turn shape individuals' strategies of action. Swidler's interest in culture and institutions led to the study of how societies in sub-Saharan Africa responded to the AIDS pandemic. Her recent work analyzes global and local responses to this epidemic in Africa, looking at how the massive international AIDS effort interacts with existing African cultural and institutional patterns. Her newest book with Susan Cotts Watkins is A Fraught Embrace, The Romance and Reality of AIDS Altruism in Africa, forthcoming from Princeton University Press. Professor Swidler earned her master's and doctorate in sociology at UC Berkeley and her undergraduate degree cum laude from uh, Harvard University. A professor in the Department of Sociology since 1987, she also taught on the sociology faculty at Harvard and at Stanford. Additionally, she has been a Guggenheim Fellow, French American Foundation Professor of American Civilization, Fellow of the Successful Societies Program of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, Visiting Scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation, and Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Anne Swidler's lecture first inquires as to what makes institutions good before questioning how such institutions might be achieved given our current political, social, and economic conditions. Yikes. (laughs) Um, Drawing on several studies of politics across national contexts, including her studies of chieftaincy in sub-Saharan Africa, Swidler's lecture will highlight critical institutional features that most analysts of political institutions neglect, long temporal horizons, shared cultural and ritual forms, systems of status aggregation, narrative power, and elite consolidation. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ann Swidler. Thank you very much. This is a tremendous honor, and I'm delighted to be here. 
Um, giving this lecture got a lot harder, but the ideas it grapples with are even more important after November 8th. Perhaps the relevant caution is that in our reaction to the election, further weakening of American institutions is the wrong answer. This was a traumatic election in which our own political institutions seem continuously under assault. Aware of the longer-term fraying of many of the institutional practices we may have taken for granted as a solid framework for our lives, it is even more necessary to think about whether we can create good institutions. I want to begin by uh, discussing the words of my title, one by one. Uh, I'll start with we. I am thinking of we in two potentially very different senses. One is the we I have been studying in sub-Saharan Africa. We, not necessarily all of you, uh, of the developed West, as we look around the world and attempt, usually unsuccessfully, to build or reconstruct state or community institutions in places as diverse as formerly war-torn Liberia and Sierra Leone, or more urgently, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and other failed or near-failing states, or most notoriously, as we, failed spectacularly to help build or rebuild a state in Iraq after the 2003 invasion that overthrew Saddam Hussein. Colin Powell is said to have warned George W. Bush, pottery barn rules, you break it, it's yours. But that catastrophe revealed more than Bush's fecklessness. We have lots of ideas, some only fantasies, about how to dismantle power. Suspicion of government, a distrust of power and of elites, run deep in American political culture. But just think how bare our cupboard of ideas was when we tried to rebuild after dismantling the Iraqi government. We are inept at nation building, even when we attempt to create more egalitarian, democratic, participatory, or empowering institutions. It is easy to condemn the Bush administration for giving no thought to post-invasion Iraqi law and order, for purging Sunnis from the military and the civil service and so on. But what I find even more frightening about the failed post-invasion reconstruction is that the experts we sent to do nation-building were a small group with expertise in, guess what? Writing constitutions. That is where our expertise in institution building more or less begins and ends. An idea that fits with our own political narrative but has little applicability elsewhere. I also mean we in another and perhaps more urgent sense. We ourselves, as we now try to protect, sustain, adapt, or rebuild the institutions upon which we depend. Here we may think of institutions as precious and apparently fragile as the university itself, local community institutions or institutions like marriage and family, or the regulatory institutions that structure our economy. We lack both theory and research about how to preserve the institutional legacies that hold our social life together while adapting to changing circumstances or reworking institutions so that they more fully embody our ideals. Now, the word institutions. Uh, the term institutions, along the province of anthropologists and sociologists, has more recently become the hot topic in political science and economics as well. The reasons for this ascendance are relatively straightforward and come from several directions. As economists and political scientists explored the limits of rational choice theories of human behavior, they faced Hobbes' question. If people pursue their self-interest, what creates and enforces the rules that govern that competition? These are the, quote, non-contractual elements of contract, 
essential to any contract, the rules that determine a contract's validity and the authority that enforces its provisions can't be created by the contracting parties themselves. So, scholars ask, where do the rules and the authority to enforce the rules come from? The current preoccupation with institutions also comes from more pressing concerns. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, it seemed evident that challenging power needed to be complemented by a concern with governance. And I remember this moment when the Berkeley edited journal Representations changed its editorial statement to acknowledge that criticizing power was not the only task that intellectuals needed to pay attention to. Um, So with the dangers of chaos, ethnic fragmentation, as in the Balkans and civil war, new institutions also seem vital to meet the challenges of a global social order in which we have vast biological, social, and economic interdependencies without an organizational capacity to manage that interdependence. And that is certainly the challenge that the next generation, should we have a next generation, will face. So what are institutions? The minimal definition of an institution is a set of rules and the ability to enforce them. Or, slightly expanded, a pattern of expected action of individuals or groups enforced by social sanctions, both positive and negative. An institution may be as informal as the custom of shaking hands in a social situation, where the refusal to respond to an outstretched hand might cause embarrassment and some need for an explanation. Or institutions may be formal sets of complex rules that organize entire domains of social life, like the corporation, the university, the family, the state. Uh, It is also evident that however external and objective institutions may feel at any given moment, government, the university, marriage, and the market are also subject to constant renegotiation of their defining features, their rules, and their actual rewards and sanctions. So the paradox of institutions, and I think this is something none of us have ever fully wrapped our heads around, is that on the one hand, institutions stand as obdurate, enduring, that's part of what the word institutionalized implies, enduring structures that are in some sense out there and we orient ourselves to them, and yet we are also constantly modifying them. And so one of the questions is, what are the limits? In, in what ways do institutions sometimes appear unmodifiable and at other times appear utterly fragile and easy to easy relatively easy to change. So to these features, a set of relatively stable rules and the associated rewards and sanctions that enforce these rules, I would add a third crucial feature. And for those of you who know, I'm thinking very strongly here of Philip Selznick and his, uh, the sociological tradition from which he came. Um, the implicit or explicit purposes these forms serve purposes are integral to institutions so that we really cannot understand how they operate concretely without thinking about the purposes that justify them. For example, if the purpose of a handshake is to greet someone while suggesting friendly intentions, one can decline a handshake with a smile and an apology for having one's hands full, substituting the intention for the actual action. As we have redefined formal institutions like marriage, a sense of their larger purposes has also been essential to the debate. 
So we modify the formal structures of our institutions in light of what we understand their purposes to be. Purposes play a more central role than many scholars recognize in how institutions work. So the university is an institution, a set of recognized structures, rules, and purposes that would allow us, for example, to know how to start a new university. That is, it's something like a recipe or a model that's out there, even when it's not being used, and should we decide to initiate a new university, probably a foolish venture at this moment in history, but anyway, uh, we would assemble professors, students, labs, classrooms, and so forth. But even with all these ingredients assembled, we would deny the term university to what is only a profit-making organization without an educational mission, although this is certainly the boundary that Trump University, for example, has tested. We say that isn't a real university, no matter what its name is. And that's, I, I just want you to recognize that your ability to say that isn't a real X is precisely a measure of the reality of the existence of an institution. It's the, if that gap can't exist, then you don't have an institution. Uh, there is a tension between an institutionalized form and its actual instantiation at any given moment or in any given form. Uh, my co-authors and I described this in our book, The Good Society, using the example of baseball. And I quote, us, baseball with its purposes, codes, and standards is a collective moral enterprise, an institution in the full sense, and many Americans care deeply about it. As an institution, baseball is more than the actual players and organizations who play the game during any given season. Uh, this was beautifully expressed in 1989 when the former president of Yale, late baseball commissioner Bartlett A. Giamatti, a. Bartlett Giamatti announced his decision to ban Pete Rose from baseball for having gambled on the sport. And Giamatti wrote, I believe that baseball is an important, enduring American institution. It must assert and aspire to the highest of principles of integrity, of professionalism, of performance, of fair play within its rules. It will come as no surprise that like any institution composed of human beings, this institution will not always fulfill its highest aspirations. I know of no earthly institution that does. But this one, because it is so much a part of our history as a people and because it has such a purchase on our national soul, has an obligation to the people for whom it is played, to its fans and its well-wishers, to strive for excellence in all things and to promote the highest ideals. We make the same distinction when we say that a decision by our university was unworthy of it or betrayed its mission, or when we make a similar judgment about whether members of a real family would treat each other in certain ways, or whether a real friend would betray a confidence. Thus, institutional forms are defined by purposes that transcend their concrete limitations. Okay, why do purposes matter? Institutionally defined purposes matter not only when they sound moral and high-minded. Such purposes allow those working in actual organizations to coordinate their activities, as when a cor corporation sees its purpose as profit or when a university defines itself as devotion, devotion, devoted sorry, to scholarship or learning. To use an example with which many of us are familiar, while we may be cynical about whether teaching and scholarly action, excellence, sorry, actually guide every decision we make in the university, without a sense of such purposes, 
How could we decide what undergraduates to admit, which graduate students should receive fellowships, which faculty to hire or promote, and the hundreds of other decisions we make daily about grading, writing letters of recommendation, designing courses, and hundreds of other tasks if we did not have a discourse available to us, perhaps a discourse with multiple visions in contention about the fundamental purposes of the university. Those purposes link institutional models and their ideals to the nitty-gritty struggles of daily organizational life. Now, the word good. Then what are good institutions? I have a very simple definition of good institutions, although in practice it's quite difficult to measure and evaluate institutions along a single dimension. Good institutions, for my purposes, are those that create and maintain collective goods. Aha. Goods. The good maintains goods. All right. But what I mean by collective goods, and this overlaps with what economists mean by public goods, are peace and security, uh, infrastructure such as roads and clean water, and services such as public health, education, economic opportunity, justice and the rule of law, and at national and global levels, effective responses to such matters as climate change, global health, and peace. Other conceptions of what makes good institutions, like Amartya Sen's definition of justice as the capacities that nurture human freedom or ideas of democracy and equality, are important ideals, but building them into the definition of good institutions blinkers us, I think, since most institutions throughout most of human history did not meet our particularly modern conceptions of the good. Finally, the word create. Usually we don't imagine creating institutions, but rather inheriting them from the distant past. Indeed, while there are moments of radical institutional innovation, the Constitutional Congress of the United States, the formation of the League of Nations or the United Nations, or the International Criminal Court, we usually inherit institutions and modify them only gradually. Indeed, the conundrum we face at the current moment is that institutions seem so easy to destroy, but very hard to rebuild. Institutions depend on the past in two fundamental ways. One is that, over time, institutional endowments accumulate. This can be true in the literal sense as when a university accumulates a large financial endowment, but also in a larger cultural sense when the loyalties and commitments of an organization's members or its prestige or reputation, what we would now cynically call its brand, have accumulated in many small increments over a long period of time. The ability of a government to exercise authority, of a tax system to collect taxes, or, for example, the Supreme Court to enforce its directives, may depend precisely on such long accumulated endowments. This image of institutional endowments, and I will point out the danger of institutional depletion, as legacies of the distant past, is odd, however, since we also know that institutions are continuously being adapted, even while sometimes claiming ancient lineage. So, for example, the institutions of marriage and family have been altered frequently throughout American history. It isn't just marriage equality, uh, that is, gay marriage. Changes in laws about women's ability to inherit property, the shifting authority of husbands over wives and children, and most important, perhaps, the shift in the ease and financial consequences of a divorce have changed not only the practical realities of marriage, but also the moral understandings of its purposes. 
from a primarily economic partnership meant to support the rearing of children to a relationship meant to provide love and companionship to its participants. Thus, institutions are inherited from the past, but there is a sleight of hand infusing older forms with new meanings and purposes. So why does the past matter so much for institutions to function effectively? And yet, in another sense, the past matters so little. This is the heart of the difficulty of imagining creating good institutions. Here I want to start talking about what we know from a research literature that uh, I have pulled together from several different places. First, I want to talk about a recent paper by three economists, among them Berkeley's Ted McGill, uh, which involved a three-and-a-half-year Norwegian-funded project in war-torn Sierra Leone that started to, sought to encourage more democratic, egalitarian, participatory, and especially gender-inclusive decision-making. Uh, the NGO that was running the big project selected 236 villages. This is just a huge sample if you think about what they, I mean, the ambition of this is amazing. And with the guidance of the researcher, they randomized those villages so that 118 villages received this intensive training and encouragement to develop participatory decision-making, and the other 118 villages were left to make decisions as they always had. Um, local projects facilitators stayed in the villages working with the new, more representative decision-making groups that had formed. They monitored the groups to make sure women were really participating. They gave them small grants so that they could work together to make collective decisions to kind of practice decision-making where it mattered. And they actually did. The groups successfully made decisions together using more participatory methods. They built a small project. Once they had succeeded in doing that, they received a larger grant, and again, with lots of training and monitoring and participation by facilitators who were local people who lived in the villages and who visited every village for one full day a week, minimum. So this went on for three years, um, all the while being coached, trained, encouraged, and so on and so forth. At the end of the project, the research team assessed decision-making in all the villages. First, they ran a public goods game, and this is when each participant in an experimental setting is given a small amount of money. This was the equivalent of about $2, which would be enormously valuable in any very poor African country. And participants had a choice about whether to put some or all of the money in a common pot where it would be spent for some village project or whether to keep the money. And they could choose how much to put to each use. Second, the researchers, and this is the very clever part of this, I have to say, as they were packing up at the end of the study, offered each village a gift to thank them for all the participation and so forth, uh, either a big box with a lot of batteries, small batteries, or a big box with little bags of salt that they had measured to be exactly equivalent in money value to the batteries. So there was no difference in which was more valuable. And they left both boxes in the village, telling villagers that they would return at the end of the day, and whichever one the villagers didn't want, they would take back. Um, they also, without making explicit that this was part of their study, left behind a big tarp, like a big blue tarp, that they had used, and they just said, we don't need this anymore, we're leaving it. And then finally, they gave every village a voucher, an another gift to thank them for their 
participation and help the voucher for the local hardware store that could be spent however they wanted. And they had their own people who were still packing up all the stuff they had been doing in the villages observe how decisions were made, and then their research team came back some months later, and since they knew every physical structure in every village, they could judge what had happened to that tarp. Was it now forming a crucial bit of protection, waterproofing in the chief's thatched hut, which would be a very reasonable and desirable use for it from the chief's point of view, or did it have some other use? Okay, the results of this very first of all, just massively ambitious project, way beyond anything we normally do in democracy building and just way beyond what you could afford to do, actually. Incredibly intense, expensive project. What were the results? The first answer is that there was no difference between the experimental and control villages. So three and a half years of effort made no difference. Fostering new participatory institutions had apparently had no effect. But perhaps more interesting is who did make decisions and what decisions were made in both the experimental and control villages. In both sorts of villages, most villagers of the public goods game gave all their money to the common pot. So Sierra Leone may have been war-torn but it was not a place in which people did not feel obligated. And my hunch, there's some other research that would suggest pressure from the chief is what led people to contribute to the common pot, not selflessness. But nonetheless, the effect was that people gave very substantial amounts to the common pot. When it came to choosing between the batteries and the bags of salt, the chief chose. There was no participation, no gender, no nothing. The chiefs just chose. The tarp left behind, however, did not end up keeping the rain out of the chief's hut. Rather, when researchers returned to the village months later, they found that in both experimental and control villages, the tarps had been shared by village women used to bleach their grain in the sun. Similarly, the items purchased with the hardware store vouchers had been used for village projects. So perhaps the new institutions didn't take root because chiefs, the institution of chieftaincy, was already producing collective goods. And we have to ask why the NGO assumed that participatory, gender egalitarian decision-making would be a vast improvement over what these villages already had. Now I want to talk about a second study uh, by sociologist Stephen Cornell and an economist, Joseph Colt. In a similarly ambitious project, they compared economic development across more than 60 Native American tribes. And I have to say, this was another just remarkably ambitious project. They were at Harvard, and they got students from the Harvard Business School to serve as consultants to reservation communities that requested their help. And they went for a minimum of six months, recorded a vast battery of economic data, and offered whatever consulting services they could offer about managing the tribe's economic welfare. So this was a sort of exchange of research data for consulting help, and of course it was great experience for these essentially internships uh, offered these Harvard Business School students. All right. They found first, and this is a very, very strong finding, that tribes' economic fortunes, this was the era before casinos, so I actually don't know 
how you would measure this effectively now. But tribes' economic fortunes differed radically depending on how well they were governed, not on their natural resources, local labor market conditions, or any other advantages or disadvantages of their objective economic situation. Tribes that were well-governed were economically successful. Those that were poorly governed failed economically, even when they had enormously rich natural resources, for example. What then accounted for better or worse governance? In a stunning paper titled, Where's the Glue?, Cornell and Colt show that well-governed tribes had governance structures that corresponded roughly to the governance structures Europeans recorded at first contact with the group. Institutions that corresponded to long-standing cultural patterns were the most effective at creating collective goods. A tribe governed at first contact by a self-perpetuating group of six shamans that was currently governed by a self-selected group of shamans who simply chose their own successors was well-governed. A tribe that at first contact was governed by an elected tribal council that was still run by an elected tribal council was well-governed. But when a tribe that at first contact was run by a single chief who had centralized authority was now governed by an elected council, it was poorly governed, with tribal elections frequently settled when one faction ran another out of office with guns. So for reasons we don't fully understand, institutions with long embedded cultural history seem to produce better governance than what we might think of as the best institutions however well they might function in theory. I could say much more about Cornell and Colt's work, why Shaman thought it would be beneath his dignity to appoint a relative to an important post, or how a Potawatomi group managed its forest resources more effectively than did the giant lumber company Weyerhaeuser. But the bottom line is a somewhat mysterious but very important finding. Even when there have been significant interruptions in groups' historical patterns of governance, so they are not saying that six shamans governed this group and governed it continuously from time immemorial. In fact, all these groups had enormous interruptions in governance, partly because the U.S. Government Bureau of Indian Affairs imposed one common model on all American tribes for a period of about 40 years, and then it relented and let tribes choose a variety of different organizational patterns. But also, uh, there have been almost unimaginable disruptions in all these groups' forms of social life. So uh, the federal policy forced them to redefine themselves as tribes, whatever their historic forms of social organization were. Competing bands were forced to merge in order to negotiate effectively with the federal government. And of course, populations were decimated by disease and slaughter, displaced from their lands, and often subjected to cultural genocide. Nonetheless, institutions function better when they corresponded to long-established, even if interrupted, cultural models. But must we draw the conclusion that good institutions are necessarily an ancient legacy, worked out over many generations, and that the heritage that makes for good institutions is so complex that it is almost impossible to rebuild? Since we now understand how fragile even our institutions are, this would be a truly frightening prospect. So creating good institutions. I now want to turn this argument around by considering some of the surprising features of 
good institutions that I've observed during my work in sub-Saharan Africa and that other scholars have also uh, examined to see whether they have lessons relevant for today. First, I want to talk about reinventing African chieftaincy. Across sub-Saharan Africa, chiefs and chieftaincy often delegitimated and in places outlawed due to chiefs' collaboration with colonial authorities, has come roaring back with Afrobarometer survey data from across Africa showing that traditional leaders are the most trusted, more than legislators or government officials of all types. Recent research from Zambia, a wonderful book by Kate Baldwin, a political scientist, has shown that chiefs help their communities produce collective goods of all sorts, wells for clean water, roads, schools, and attracting development projects to their villages. Why are they able to do this, and how? One surprising answer has to do with time horizons. Chiefs do a fairly good job because they have very long time horizons. Their positions are hereditary, not elected, and here I'll just say as a parenthesis, that's true, although at the time of a chiefly succession, when an old chief dies, uh, the royal family will have some negotiation and somebody who's manifestly incompetent might be pushed aside, someone who is uh, more respected. So the royal family itself has an investment in the continuity of its leadership and tries to put forward, I think, generally more competent people. Uh, chiefs are also occasionally uh, deposed if they are truly corrupt or incompetent, but that is usually done by the royal family itself. That is the, the chiefly uh, lineage group. Yeah, that would be the, called the, locally the royal family. Are right, in their positions for life, chiefs see their own well-being as identified with that of their communities, and they have a very long time horizon. Contrast this with the ever shorter time horizons of our current institutions. I refer not only to term limiting our legislators, but also to the implications of shareholder value for corporate governance so that corporate boards are legally mandated to put the performance of a corporation's stock, inevitably a short-term indicator, above any consideration of the long-term endowments of the corporation, such as loyalty and accumulated skills of its workforce, investment in long-term research and development, or long-term commitment to a local community. The Wells Fargo scandal isn't just about terrible management at one gigantic bank, but about the very short time horizon of executives whose astronomical bonuses are tied to short-term performance, sometimes only to performance for one quarter. That's three months in a corporation stock price. This is mafia territory where mergers and acquisitions can mean taking over a business with a large endowment of skills, patents, land, factories, or brand name, selling off the most valuable bits, driving up short-term profitability by drastically cutting costs, usually by laying off workers at the cost of longer-term performance, and selling out before the market catches on, leaving the hollowed-out wreckage. This isn't just a matter of corporate crooks who should be prosecuted, although my brother used to say, only half-joking, that such crimes made him reconsider his opposition to the death penalty. Such changes are a consequence of the broader institutional order, in this case the redefinition of the legal and regulatory environment within which corporations worked after the 1980s. As when we redefine the ease of divorce or the 
terms of our legislators, we alter an institution and its terms, including its taken for granted uh, extension forward in time. Universities are unusual in this respect in that many of their members, especially alumni and many tenured faculty, have lifelong, not short-term, investments in the institution, its reputation, and its future. But the politicians who control the university's fate inevitably have the same short-term pressures and incentives to please current constituents, admit more students, don't raise tuition, don't raise taxes, that make long-term investments so difficult throughout our society. And of course, the contrast between political institutions defined by short-term incentives and I should say by national boundaries, and the very long time horizon required to combat climate change are tragically evident. Okay, now I want to turn to another element of good institutions besides um, time horizons and talk about status hierarchies and ritual forms. I already described how institutions with deep cultural roots function better and are more likely to be good in my terms. The question is why and whether these insights can be carried forward to build or reinforce our own institutional capacities. Sociologists often discuss an institution's legitimacy, which I would call something like the cultural belief that the institution is the right kind of institution and that it's basically good. But it's hard to make a convincing case, at least in my view, that people's belief in the goodness or rightness of their institutions is enough to overcome the inertia, indifference, and selfishness, what uh, political scientists and others call the free rider problem, uh, which can lead even, say, socially committed people to burn out when others don't pitch in. Legitimacy is particularly difficult to demonstrate as an important feature of uh, institutional success, given that most people are quite cynical, uh, even about institutions upon which they depend and with which they cooperate. That is, I think, a sweetness and light. Institutions are, survive and are healthy because everyone loves them and believes in them. I, I just don't think we have evidence that's true. So if legitimacy isn't the main reason why shared culture matters, why and how does culture matter for institutions? And here I want to talk about another fascinating study of villagers in rural China that suggests one possible reason. Lily Tsai, who originally was a graduate student here in political science, although I didn't know her, studied more than 300 villages in both poor and wealthy regions of China. Uh, as we found for the Native American tribes, wealth did not predict whether villages provided such collective goods as roads, repaired paths, elementary school classrooms, and running water. Whether village magistrates were top-down appointees or formally democratically elected didn't matter either. What predicted public goods provision was instead whether or not the village had a traditional cultural association, a village temple committee or a village-wide lineage group that both, and these are her terms, encompassed and embedded village officials. That is, the village, had to, the village officials had to be part of such a group, and that group had to encompass most of the village. So 
Tsai's argument is that these traditional cultural associations provided a place where officials could receive status, admiration, gratitude, honor for accomplishments that benefited the village. And this status, in turn, provided those leaders resources with which to win cooperation from other members of the village community for collective projects. In a sense, status, or what Sai calls moral standing, so you have to accomplish things that people believe are good, uh, provides a reason why chiefs, mayors, or university deans and department chairs may define their own well-being by how their community regards them, and also why they may be able to win cooperation from others. Tsai writes, quote, moral standing can be a powerful incentive. It not only makes people feel good about themselves, but also it can translate into economic and social advancement. Local officials with higher moral standing may also find it easier to elicit citizen compliance with state policies. Moral standing can be an invaluable resource for accomplishing a variety of political, social, and economic objectives. Tsai uses a made-up American analogy to try to explain her argument about rural China. She says, imagine the mayor of a small town in the United States with only one church. Even if not everyone goes to church regularly, everyone sees the church as representative of the town community. In this kind of small town, if the mayor does something exemplary, that benefits the town, the minister might very well mention his good work in front of the congregation during Sunday sermon. This, in turn, can give the mayor a measure of moral and social standing in addition to whatever he might already possess as a public official or a member of a social elite. Increased moral standing may also make his mayoral tasks easier to carry out when he tries to implement implement a difficult state policy, a new requirement, for example, that students of a different ethnic group be bused into the town school, additional standing can help him persuade his constituents. And she literally has in mind, you know, minister goes up to some leader in the town and says, look, I, I hope I have you with me on this. And if that mayor has a lot of status, people defer and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be with you. You can count on me. That's what she's talking about. Moral standing can make citizens more likely to trust the mayor and defer to his judgment and can win over particularly stubborn opponents of the policy. We, of course, are increasingly skeptical of status inequalities. At least since the 1960s, and not only in the U.S., survey after survey has shown grown public distrust of elites of all sorts, business executives, government officials, physicians, and, of course, the scientists whose authority we need to affirm the reality of human-caused climate change. Amidst rising inequality in wealth and income, we have flattened the prestige hierarchy so that fewer people command public deference and public trust. It comes as little surprise that few, fewer are drawn to public service. Noblesse oblige is a thing of the past. No noblesse and no oblige. The new status elite are perhaps those tech billionaires who establish foundations, but this is a remarkably self-indulgent, undemocratic, and in many ways strikingly apolitical form of social commitment. And of course, the billionaires who, who intervene directly in politics, like the Koch brothers on the right and Buffett and Soros on the left, are hardly greeted with deference and gratitude. But we should not forget that status, moral standing, is a powerful reward 
global institutions and the humbler institutions within which we live and work would do well to remember its value as a stored reservoir of social commitments. And in my own uh, work in Africa, you can see very clearly that chiefs have status and they receive a lot of deference when I had to go meet one of the their various levels of chiefs. But anyway, I had to go meet one of the big ones. It, there was massive amount of attention to everyone had to bathe carefully and have wear pressed clothes and I had to bring a small gift and there's the, how we, what we would discuss I mean every aspect of this was there was as much concern as Ellen Gobbler has shown in getting every element of this lecture together for my visit to the chief uh, and then it turns out that what chiefs do, what do they actually do since they have no physical authority, they don't have police they don't have guns, they don't have troops, they don't have enforcers, they really just totally rely on their moral authority to make many, many very, very important decisions. Well, turns out that when someone is known to be uh, an upstanding member of the community, they actually, there's a phrase in Chichewa that says, worth, not wealth. That person is then the, the chief treats that person in an important way. If a member of that person's family dies, the chief comes in person to give a speech at the funeral rather than deputing one of his many counselors and so on and so forth. If that person, uh, it, there may be benefits to be handed out and this person who's known to be a good contributor to the community might get extra one of these benefits. But in general, you can think of these high-status people like chiefs as operating as a kind of reservoir of social commitment so that the social commitments build up their reservoir of influence and then they use that influence to reward people who in turn build up their reservoir of influence. It's a very uh, recognizable pattern and it flows through status. Okay, then another aspect of this, and it's tied to status, has to do with the role of rituals. And I think these traditional cultural uh, practices matter partly because they create collectively recognized ritual occasions. And I think we tend to be cynical about rituals. We're cosmopolitan elites, although I hope you will still recognize the world I'm talking about. Um, where there are shared rituals, think here of an annual PTA meeting or a church, or in my case, the ritual life of my own academic department, and I'll say my synagogue, uh, it really matters whether we have an occasion to celebrate the achievements of our members, to thank those, for example, who've deserved, served as department chair, or others who've served the university or who've lived up to ideals of scholarship, teaching, or mentorship. Indeed, that is part of what remembering Bernard Moses is about. Such rituals serve many functions. They build solidarity. They allow people to deliver the status honor to publicly affirm the moral standing of those who contribute to the community. But also, very importantly, when people thank those who have contributed to the collective, they enhance the sense of the value of the group itself. And I was very aware of this uh, this year. I was thinking about such things at our big department graduation ceremony each spring. As we celebrate the graduates, we also celebrate our department and the fundamental value of our teaching and research. We publicly thank and praise each other. 
and we thus emphasize, we create and reiterate a narrative in which we are all doing our share and more to carry out our responsibility for the institution. We thus minimize the awareness of free riders who might undermine the commitment of everyone else to contribute. That is, we create the illusion that we are getting more contributions from a broader range of our members than we perhaps really are getting, and we therefore minimize the visibility of the free riders and maximize the visibility and the status of those who do contribute and the extraordinary value of the thing they contribute to. So we, my department is very big on ritual, I'm happy to say. I think it has to do a lot with having a lot of female chairs. It's been great. And we have had many, many occasions where, for example, if, if a department member receives almost any honor, we have a department reception to honor the person, and we talk about how great that person is, and we all feel, well, I'm so lucky to be in a department with such a terrific person, and that, that person's prestige, one of our department members was knighted by the Norwegian government, and so we felt, well, we have a knight in our department. That's fantastic. No. And so we've, we absorbed his honor into ourselves, and we elevated our sense of the larger purposes, the larger shared value of what we were doing. So, um, and so it, it reinforces the idea that uh, there's a privilege to be part of such a wonderful group. Finally, collective ritual occasions do something else that we may normally be less aware of. And here I'm going to talk about a horrible, a really horrible image, but I want you to think about it and then generalize it to better things. If you think about uh, Jim Jones and his cult and the drinking the Kool-Aid, that was rehearsed over and over again as a test of who was really committed and who wasn't. That is, there wasn't cyanide in the Kool-Aid until the last time, but there was not just a way, as a way of tricking people into committing suicide at the end, but there, it was a sign that you were committed. Would you stand up with everyone else and say, yes, I'll drink the Kool-Aid? And those are ways that leaders of all sorts, and this is particularly true for authoritarian societies and for cults of all sorts, they test who's really with them through ritual performances. So you want to get yourself killed in North Korea? Well, actually, it's quite easy to do, but one of the ways to do it is not to look adequately enthusiastic and attentive at some public ritual. Literally, you purge those who cooperate in the ritual but the ritual allows you to see who is really with you. It's a sort of pretest of that. And so in a much more benign setting, uh, we can say that rituals rehearse and test the obligations that members of a community have to one another. You may sometimes have wondered, have wondered, as you shelled out money you can't really afford to attend a wedding or a bat mitzvah in a distant city for relatives you hardly remember, or with whom you have very little in common when you do see them, why you are going to the trouble of doing this. But your demonstration that you are willing to put in that effort, spend that money, tightens those bonds and makes them real. So people often think that rituals celebrate what already exists, but rituals actually enact, 
and bring into being things that potentially exist. I'm thinking, for example, of the many weddings and bar and bat mitzvahs I've seen where a divorced couple has to decide how they are going to physically handle the complexities of the ritual. Well, I turn it around in my head, and I think the ritual exists partly because it is the place where people publicly enact and therefore reaffirm their bonds to each other. And they don't just reflect the bonds that are already there. They construct new publicly validated definitions of those bonds. So when I saw the parents, the divorced parents of one of my nephews, walk together with him, stand together with him at his bar mitzvah, I knew they were saying, we will put you first above our disagreements and our distaste for each other, and we will be there for you when you need us. I don't even know that they always were. But that declaration, that public declaration, shifts the ground. It, it enacts, and in a sense, the community then monitors those public commitments. So ritual occasions create the moments when people symbolize their loyalties. We may think of Fourth of July for patriotic loyalties, but also, again, think of the distant family who, shows up, who show up for a cousin's wedding or an uncle's funeral, and then find that having reaffirmed their commitment in this symbolic way, and this is autobiographical, I have done this, uh, I both missed a very important funeral and it permanently damaged my relationship to a cousin. And I have gone to things that I thought I had no real reason to go to and found I was much more committed to my family afterward. So they've now made that commitment real in a way it wasn't before the ritual moment. So rituals matter, and institutions cannot really thrive without them. Returning to Lily Tsai's work on Chinese villages, we can see how village temple activities strengthen the capacity of village institutions to produce collective goods. She writes, villagers have, a clear, have clear obligations to contribute to and participate in village temple activities because these collective activities represent group tributes to the village's guardian deities. Village residents are expected to make donations to help fund these activities. The names of donors and the amount they donated are posted publicly on the temple wall. Village temples are an important symbol of the village community. They provide strong institutions enforcing each member's responsibility to contribute to the collective good and numerous opportunities for publicizing whether members have fulfilled their responsibilities. Rituals really matter. I'm back to me. And without shared rituals, the emotional charge they generate and the concentrated social information they convey, it is difficult to construct binding social ties. Enduring social institutions necessarily have a symbolic core, one that conveys membership and meaning, not just practical interests and enforceable obligations. Often that symbolic core and the rituals that reinforce it work at an emotional and unconscious rather than purely rational level. This, I think, accounts for some of the emotional reactions to the recent election. Where love of country has been expressed in symbolic rituals, like the arms linked around Lake Merritt in Oakland, only because we hold America and its traditions sacred do we feel so violated when those values are threatened. So status and ritual go together and reinforce each other, and both reinforce the ability of institutions to call forth commitments for their mem from their members. Now I want to return, and this is my last point, big point, a couple other small points, um, 
to the practical issues. Who gains and loses? Most of the literature on creating institutions really is based on a model of complex negotiations. That is, you form institutions when you realize it's in your interests and you sort of agree to bind yourself over to a set of institutional processes. And those, and then if you read Asimoglu and Robinson and such literature, they have more an image that it's when you're, you're truly threatened with losing your control then you make concessions that essentially broaden and deepen participation, things like that. And then why those things last, they're not so clear on. But I would say that the models of where those institutional commitments come from are very thin. They say a lot of powerful things about interest and very little about the, the other aspects that go along with interest. But if we turn to interest for a minute... I think it's true that institutions cannot survive if, over the long haul, people see that the ideals or justifications the institutions embody bear no relationship to the ways they allocate rewards and punishments or sanctions. Although paradoxically, and here I, I think we really have to take this into account, institutions survive very well and can survive over a very long period of time even if most people who play by their rules never realize the benefits they promise. That, I think, is in fact routine. Many, many people try to become academics, and most will never become the fancy professors we're privileged to be. Uh, think of the opportunity the market promises for ability and hard work in a world in which most people will most, not everyone, but most people will get some kind of a job and will have some way of supporting their self, but most people will not achieve most of the rewards the system seems to promise. People know that the American dream probably won't work for them, but they continue to be attached to the institutions that support that fantasy. Or the continuing allure of marriage, even for those who never marry or who are in situations where marriage is not a practical possibility, uh, even as actual marriages fail many people. So institutions do not have to actually reward everyone who plays by their rules. And I don't think they do, and I don't think we have evidence that that's what makes them work. But uh, even though institutions can keep hold of imaginations, even of many people whom they let down in the end, that is very different from it becoming evident that the very standards at the core of the institution's narrative do not work, that even those who are successful in the institution's own terms aren't rewarded. And here I want to briefly mention a great book. It's an old book by Harrison and Cynthia White on institutional transformation in the French painting world, and they essentially are trying to explain the rise of the Impressionists, what they show is that the academic system for regulating French painting, which was a very well-established institutional system with its own educational system and then its channels of mobility and so forth, depended on the notion that artists would achieve rewards and the reward was usually patronage from the French state that would then commission the successful people to paint something for a public building or to create a public sculpture or something like that. Uh, those winners in that system would be chosen in these enormous juried shows. And as thousands of provincials started to long to become artists and therefore flooded into Paris trying to succeed, 
spending years creating one painting on which their whole fate depended. Those thousands and thousands of paintings, and you've, if you've ever been to the Renwick, you can kind of imagine what this was like. You know, these very, very tall uh, ceilings, very high ceilings, and walls covered with thousands of paintings. And then you had these juries, let's imagine six or seven men in some kind of black robes, wandering around. They couldn't even see the paintings. They couldn't even see them. There could be no pretense that they were choosing the best, that they truly were judging which artists deserved these enormous rewards. So it wasn't just that the number of rewards was far too small for the number of aspirants. It was that the pretense that the rewards made sense in terms of the institution's own narrative couldn't be maintained. And then, I don't know how true this is, but the whites paint this picture where a new institutional system grows up outside the old order. They call it the dealer-critic system, and that's the one out of which the support for the Impressionists emerges, but also a new narrative, which is the starving artist in the garret who is discovered by the early purchasers who see the genius and the artist starves and dies, but the, uh, those who supported his or her work are vindicated. Okay, so it may seem surprising that narratives, stories linking moral meanings to outcomes, could be essential to the patterned realities we call institutions, but I think they are incredibly important. When we try to export participatory decision-making institutions to Africa, or we aspire to create new global institutions to regulate carbon emissions, or to prevent war, or to rescue refugees, we may not think that we are constructing a persuasive narrative. A narrative, for example, about how empowered women will be able to prevent themselves from acquiring HIV. But that is precisely what drives policy formation. Policy comes when the narrative is moving and persuasive and seems to make sense. Um, so narratives are really central to creating institutions, even as we try to envision rules that will guide expectations over the long run and somehow, we hope, acquire enduring authority to regulate or constrain action. Indeed, I think good research suggests that creating new institutions usually means, in fact, not creating institutions from scratch. It usually means adapting pieces of already existing institutions, and I think narratives play a critical role in this process. I think that's why in the Cornell and Colt findings, it matters what Native American groups' governance structures were a long time ago, even when there isn't continuity in the actual concrete institution. And I want to use just a couple of last pieces of research to suggest that this might be true without having done research that can show that it actually is true. And one is a book on Africa by an anthropologist, Sandra Barnes. The book is called Patrons in Power. It's a wonderful study of what happened in a suburb of Lagos, Nigeria, when enormous numbers of people, millions, had moved into an unincorporated area outside Lagos. So they had no political representation and no way to get services like running water and sanitation and so forth. What did they do? And these were groups from multiple different ethnic groups. They weren't even all Yoruba, let alone from the same Yoruba tribe. 
They created chiefs. They invented chieftaincies. And then people who wanted to be chiefs invented genealogies that legitimated their chieftaincy claims. And so the, the, what's fascinating is these weren't actual chiefs who set up shop there. This was a collective attempt to create legitimate forms of political authority and political access by taking the familiar narrative that everyone could recognize about how you form yourself as a collectivity and what it means to be uh, represented politically, and then inventing brand new chieftaincies, which in fact got them represented. I mean, then that was then those people had a lot of influence. They could go to politicians. There's a very similar story from totally different historical era, which is from a, a book that's much too complicated to summarize, but Rick Bernanke's book, The Fabrication of Labor. And Bernanke argues that if you try to look at how labor, that is the relationship between factory owners and workers, got constituted differently in Britain and Germany, what you need to see is what the earlier institutions were that they adapted at great remove in order to imagine what the factory was and what labor was. And Bernanke says that they were essentially in Germany where they did not already have a market in labor and in commodities at the time of industrialization. They adapted the feudal form. These would have been the Junkers who could get corvée labor from their peasants. That's one day a month you have to come and build the stone wall around my land or something like that. And they saw when they paid for labor, they thought of it in that way. They were buying the time of the laborer with a wad of money. When the British constructed factories, they already had a market in labor and commodities. So what they thought they were doing is something like the putting out system brought within four walls. They were buying the piece of cloth and paying for it in terms of how high quality the cloth was, how many uh, threads per inch there were. And Germans and British factory owners continued to use radically different systems for understanding how they paid their workers based on the institutional models, the imaginaries they were drawing on in these two very different contexts. So uh, now I conclude. And my conclusion is really that the question of how you create good institutions is so critical that we really need serious research on this so that the next time we have to think about such problems, we don't find that our theoretical and research cupboard is bare. That is the A number one. I, I, this is not a problem I'm going to solve. This is a problem I think is urgently important. But I have a couple of final morals of this story. The first is don't flee from effective institutions. Seek them. Don't let yourself be, I don't know what word to use, deluded, overwhelmed, uh, sucked in by the American romance in which this is very American. If we can only throw off institutions and just be free to be ourselves, the day after the election, I was talking to, I, I bought shoes, believe it or not. I mean, I was so crazed. But anyway, I was talking to this young woman from Zappos, and she said, uh, oh, she very chatty. She said, oh, yes, I live in Nevada, and this, you know, terrible outcome election, blah, blah, blah. And then she said, uh, I didn't vote. I, in Nevada, you can vote none of the above, she said. 
And that's how I voted, because I wanted to be true to my conscience. I, I well, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that hanging. And I also want to say that um, one more thing, which is loss of an institutional legacy also constricts our imagination about what politics and social life are or could be. That is, it's not only that we base our institutions on narratives that seem persuasive, but that the narratives we constitute about who we are and about our own lives in turn depend on institutional models. So just as institutional capacities often come from resuscitating older institutional models to serve in new ways, as we saw with the uh, suburb of Lagos or the workers and bosses in Germany, the loss of institutions threatens to leave us with the understanding that only market institutions, money, raw coercive power, and market forces are real. I have two issues slash questions I'd like to raise. One is coming back to your um, definition of good and good institutions. And good, I mean, we may know what's, what is good versus evil, but good can have many definitions. And an example is, one example is the election. And there are, you talked about people gathering around Lake Merritt. Well, there are people, you know, this was a very tiny, tiny majority, not the popular vote, but the electoral college vote was tiny. And there are people who felt that voting for Trump was good and that that government will be good. So I think we need to recognize good. I I was watching television the other night, and a potential secretary of, I guess, the interior said climate change, saying that climate change is caused by man is silly. We don't agree. I assume nobody in this room agrees. But that is one definition of a good institution. So I think we need to, I mean, that is one person, perhaps a group's definition of good. So good institutions can differ. My other question, comment, is a lot of your work has been about NGOs and and criticizing NGOs, you didn't mention that here. But NGOs, there are lots of NGOs, but that is an institution that, and I don't know. Do you want to say something about NGOs? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me try to address this thing about good. So I was, re- one reason I define good institutions really by this set of outcomes, which is that they produce I don't know what you call, but let's call them public goods in the economist sense, rather than all the other things I might think make institutions good, like being inclusive and democratic and participatory, or being, uh, you know, just by my lights, or being 
you know, representing my ethnic group or, you know, uh, representing God's will or this and that. I mean, I agree with you that when it comes to people's moral understandings of what's good, I don't think actually we face chaos. It might feel like it. I actually don't think that's true. But, but it's true that people can have, you know, profoundly different uh, starting points for thinking about such issues and they can end up, I'm think, looking at Nisim Mizrahi here, but they can end up so profoundly divided in certain ways that the, the whole set of premises they have about what their common life should be really create divisions they can't bridge. So, so I'm, I'm not saying that there's only one definition of the good and that I have it or something. I really was trying to use a very sort of concrete and pragmatic definition of good institutions, not as the ones that we would necessarily find morally the most appealing, but the ones that are able to accomplish certain kinds of things in their particular historical context. And I think they often don't look like the kind of institutions. I mean, you would not like living in a chieftaincy. I can absolutely guarantee it. You would hate it. No, you would hate it. And many, many people go to Africa, for example, and just see these things as totally corrupt, which to some degree they are. That is, you give a gift to the chief, and if some goodies come into the village, the chief will certainly take a skim, skim a share, but not nearly the share that the government officials will skim. <laughs> and there are reasons for that. So, Hi, my name's Ethan. I'm a sociologist at UC Davis, huh. and I'm you mentioned this piece about uh, status, hierarchies, and rituals, and gave some examples. And, and I'm trying to struggle with this, how we've divided ourselves and like the identity politics that are, seem to be really driving a lot of things. And so, But the examples you gave of where hierarchies work or where status works, rituals work, seem very small. And so I'm asking if you've thought, like, have we just outgrown our capacity to reach across demographics yeah. to share in that type of work, and that that's a place for for change, or or is it that we are dividing ourselves into smaller identities that are, is problematic? Yeah, I was going to say, oh shoot, that's a really good point, and I hoped uh, it wouldn't be too obvious. No, I think you're right that the image of uh, ritual that I find very persuasive is the kind of thing that happens in face-to-face situations or at least in televisable moments of situations and that um, it's a little hard to figure out exactly how that applies to whole very large collectivities. But I think that you're still pointing to something, which is that, that if what our current politics and the desire for, let's call it, you know, let's use the Charles Taylor or whatever term, recognition, so enormous numbers of groups with different identities and different needs, and it's not just racial and ethnic identity politics or sexual community identity politics, really is part of or religious group identity politics. It, 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 it's part of, you know, I think the whole way we've learned to speak about collective life is to make sure everyone feels recognized. Uh, and then the question is, does that allow room for there to be uh, a a recognition of some kind of elite, and here I'll just use the brutal term elite status, that everyone would be willing to defer to because we see those people, and I'm really not thinking of me, but I'm thinking of people like people who 
would serve on some governmental con- commission to try to deal with a crisis facing us if money for Medicare runs out, or people who would be seen as potential neutral arbiters. And I think if our theory is that everyone has his or her own reality, that your reality is shaped by your social position so that uh, you know, standpoint theory is our only theory, I think we're really in bad shape. I think those are not good bases on which to build collective institutional life. So in a way, I agree with you, but I think that if you really want to think about how to rebuild institutions, confronting the fact that in even coming out of this election, everyone is going to conclude that the problem is that the elites are too elitist. Well, my problem is the elites aren't elite enough. What's the matter with them? You know, enriching yourself privately is totally incompatible with really being a member of the elite. If you want to claim national leadership status, you have to be in some ways heroic. And maybe this gets a little to Joanna's question about the NGOs. I think one of the reasons that people have run headlong in sometimes a not very fruitful direction uh, is because they're looking for some kind of heroic self, self-abnegation, self-sacrifice. So we're much more re- re- willing to believe that, um, now his name is going to go completely out of my head, but the Partners in Health guy. Uh, yes, thank you, James Farmer. Is Paul, Paul Farmer, sorry. That James Farmer is someone else important, but not. Yeah, Paul Farmer. Is, has a kind of heroism, a kind of genuine elite status, a kind of genuine willingness to sacrifice for the public good that allows sort of the collective imagination to focus on him and the vision he's offering. And I think we don't know how to construct that again. I mean, it's even if you think about Scotch Pole's book, Protecting Sol- Soldiers and Mothers, one of the reasons women during the progressive era were able to be so influential in American politics is because Americans don't like politicians. They think they're corrupt and self-interested. And women were seen as above politics because they didn't have the vote, because what they did was seen as really being for the public good. So they could mobilize some kind of prestigious commissions and things. That's exactly what they did do, you know, to study the problem of tainted milk or the problem of infants dying or the problem of rat feces in the meat or whatever it was. And try to get reform. So I think realizing that we've gotten so good at being suspicious of elites that I think it's actually undermined our ability to think about what we need going forward. So, yes. Thank you. I'm a little thrown by the great questions ahead of me. You said something that I understood to, to be... Seek effective institutions. Can you say a little more about that? Well, I think partly that was the whole talk was meant to be about that. But just I I guess I have this fear that people are going to turn away from government, going to say, oh, I hate bureaucracy. I hate, you know, the administration, for instance, if you if you member of the university community, which I can't help but think about because it's the community I'm most attached to, mm-hmm. and really there's a kind of let's get rid of this chancellor, and then oh we don't like him either. Let's get rid of the next one. And then let's oh let's get well. I mean it may be that some of them have been much better than others, 
-hmm. But the idea that sort of, you know, slash and burn is really the way to go in terms of our institutional life, I just don't think it's true. And so that I'm not justifying any particular person who was either incompetent or self-dealing or uh, corrupt or didn't tell the truth, but I think the level of, of sort of savagery that we think is now appropriate toward anyone who attempts to take a position of leadership, if that's our style, then don't we really expect leaders to be demagogues who can just ride roughshod over that? Because any reasonable person, <laughs> how, how could he or she stand up to it? So, you know, that, that's my... That's where I was coming from. Thank you. That so. clarifies. Thank you. Yeah. Talk about what the difference is between your idea of endowment and the idea of legitimacy that is used to evaluate the extent to which people respond to the purposes that you talked about and the principles that are embedded in the purposes of the different institutions. It seems to me that's what legitimacy is about, is an evaluation that's continual and perpetual that people are constantly doing about every institution that affects their lives, and that it's a lot different than just an endowment of something. Well, okay, so for me, the word endowment is meant to connote, I guess, or all the uh, long legacy of other people's efforts that have built something up to be what it is. And actually, again, I'll refer to the, the university here where, you know, it's an incredible privilege to be here. University of California, Berkeley is certainly the greatest public university in the world and maybe the greatest single university in the world. And it's not because of anything I did. It's because of generations and generations of people, taxpayers who put their tax dollars into the institutions, administrators who built it, indeed, the endowment of the corpus of scholarly work that comes from generations and generations before us, and you know this very well. And so I have a feeling that that endowment gets built up over time. Sometimes it also involves an endowment of money. And you're right, it involves an endowment of purposes, that's for sure. Um, And I I don't want to fight you, especially you, uh, to the death about rejecting the concept of legitimacy. But, but there my sense is, wow, we could dissipate this thing pretty quickly. For example, if just let me do a really worst-case scenario. Berkeley desperately needs money. It decides a Berkeley degree because of the brand is really worth a lot. And so it will just sell them. Something very similar, by the way, happened before the French Revolution when the French state was desperate to raise money and it sold offices. And actually, the English crown did it before the English Revolution also. They sold baronets. So, you know, it's not impossible if you're desperate enough and you just would sell degrees or sell them for some, you know, minimal amount of symbolic effort, knowing full well they didn't really represent anything. And then you would spend up that endowment. You would deplete it almost overnight. So I, I, that's the sense in which I think of endowment as that sort of accumulated set of commitments and uh, resources. And, uh, and so I guess that's, that's how I mean it. Now, I, I agree with you. The reason I don't like the term legitimacy, or at least it's the fallback when people try to explain why culture matters for institutions. 
the thing they grab first is the word legitimacy, and they tend to mean by it a belief that the institution is right or good or the way to do things. And there certainly is, that, that's going to make a difference. For example, if at some point the Supreme Court tells uh, Donald Trump that he has to do something and he refuses, you can kind of imagine Americans rising up or, you know, and saying, wait a minute, our system is that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of national law and people have accepted that for generations and we regard it as illegitimate for you to violate a Supreme Court directive. And that would be, that would be classic. But I guess I think that those sorts of beliefs that some institution is really right or good or that the people currently running it are right or good, that, that often really doesn't exist. And again, with my, when I was hanging out in sub-Saharan Africa and I'd say to the people, oh, you know, what do you think of your chief? They'd, oh, pew. You know, that, they didn't use that term. But they'd say, oh, he, you know, he just comes, he comes to every funeral. Chiefs can't eat at a funeral because it has to do with witchcraft beliefs. Anyway, they don't eat food. But he said, he comes and he doesn't eat, but he brings his 10 counselors, and they eat you out of house and home, and this is a very vital thing for people who are very, very poor. And then, and so I said to this guy, I said, well, then why don't you just, you know, refuse to obey him? He just looked at me as if I was out of my mind. He, he looked at me as, literally, I mean, I think he couldn't believe I had said such a thing. And the reason was, he said, but, but what if, what if, and he could hardly get the words out, what if someone died? And what he was saying is that you couldn't bury your dead. You couldn't bury your dead without this guy. So even if he himself is a bad chief, chieftaincy, is, it's what makes the world run. So I guess if you will accept that legitimacy doesn't mean thinking chieftaincy is good, it means thinking that chieftaincy is actually how the world runs. Please join me in thanking Anne. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.